0: Two and a Half Admins, episode 86. I'm Joe. I'm Dalton. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And we don't have Jim with us. Unfortunately, he's feeling a little under the weather. So we've got you, Dalton. So thank you for stepping in at the last moment. No problem. I'm glad to be here. People may know you from Linux After Dark, linuxafterdark.net. And uh, is it fair to say you're a reluctant sysadmin?
1: Yes, absolutely. Only when required.
0: (laughs) Okay, good. Well, before we get started, your customary blog post plug, Alan, curiously, was written by Jim, and it's uh, Improving Replication Security with Open ZFS Delegation.
2: Yeah, so this is using the ZFS Allow framework to give a non-root user the privileges required to do ZFS replication. So on the sending machine, you can make it so it can only send and not do anything else. And then on the other side, you can set up a user that can only receive and nothing else and then use those with replication, both manually, uh, as described in the article, or Jim also spells out how to do it with his tools, uh, Syncoid. And this way, you can do the replication without requiring any root or use of sudo at all, and it makes it much more secure, because if someone does compromise the server, then they can't as easily jump to other machines, or they, they can jump to the other machine, but they're stuck with a user that has no permissions to do anything except for send or
0: receive backups. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then. And the first is that OpenSSH 9.0 has been released. And this is quantum computing proof, supposedly.
2: Well, they specifically designed it as a hybrid, right? So they use the streamlined NTRU prime post-quantum crypto stuff, but also the X25519 stuff that we've been doing now, so that if either one of them gets broken, the other one is still there. By combining the two, we make sure that we still have something that works if one of the two gets broken and they say you know even though there's no quantum attacks yet the reason they switch to this is as a backstop against any weakness in the future specifically to uh prevent capture now decrypt later right so even though right now there's no way to crack either of those algorithms if we wait until there is to switch it means that you know if a government or a bad people or whatever, we're recording the encrypted traffic, and then there comes up with a way to crack one of these key exchange algorithms, then they might be able to decrypt it. But by switching now to basically a hybrid of the two or a combination of the two, it means that if they break one of them, they won't be able to decrypt it. And by switching sooner, we make sure that they won't be able to record it now and decrypt it later once they do find a way.
1: I see a couple of other really cool features here. So SCP has been switched to SFTP instead of the legacy protocol. I think that's really nice. They were talking about getting rid of that and I I like SCP too much. It's too simple, you know?
2: Yeah, but it had a bunch of inherent security problems because so much was done on the client side or the server side, the opposite side of where you are. And so it was too easy to trick it into like downloading the wrong thing or, and so on. So they basically make it use. You, you get to keep SCP as the command line interface that you're used to, but in the back end, it's using the SFTP protocol. And currently, there is still a way to fall back, the capital O flag, because there are a couple of subtle changes specifically with how wildcards like star and question mark and so on are resolved. And SFTP doesn't do any of that. And it didn't have the ability to resolve tilde to the home directory of the user on the remote system. They've added that as a feature in OpenSSH 8.7, as a new ex- a protocol extension. But it means both sides have to support it before it'll work. So if you do need to fall back to the old behavior because something stops working, then you can use the capital O flag. But really, you want to start transitioning things. If anything does break, you can do that temporarily and fix it because this is going to be the new way, and the old way will go away. OpenSSH has definitely stepped up their efforts to remove old stuff because it's usually the source of how things get. Broken later on. But while talking about SFTP, they added a really cool uh, extension called Data Copy. So there's now, when you SFTP to a remote server, there's now a CP command where you can make a copy of a file on the remote machine without having to transfer it. That's really nice, especially with working with like
1: Windows file shares where you copy a file from one place to another and the server isn't smart
2: enough to do that. It takes forever. So being able to do the copy on the server side like that is super handy. You know, I remember when, when iSCSI and so on got those abilities for, for hypervisors
0: like VMware, it was like, wow, I want this for everything. <laughs> Magic. Something that I keep seeing in my RSS feeds is Atlassian and their outage, which seems to just be going on and on and on. And uh, recently, they said it's going to be fixed, but it's probably going to take about two weeks. So this really gets back to what you know,
2: Jim and I are always hyping on, the RPO, your recovery point objective which theirs was okay, and then the RTO, the recovery time objective. And obviously they've not practiced theirs enough because it was going to take them like two weeks to get all their backups restored.
1: I think it's more insidious than that here because it's not all their backups that are restored. I have an Atlassian client that's just fine right now and has been completely unaffected by this. It's some of the
2: data isn't there and needs to be put back, but all their backups seem to be complete. Right, and so they got to pick through it all and try to find the right things, I guess. So apparently they ran a cleanup script that was supposed to just remove a bunch of legacy stuff that wasn't being used or whatever, but it accidentally started deleting all kinds of things. Instead of deleting the legacy data, the script erroneously deleted entire sites and all associated products for those sites, including the connected products, users, and third-party applications. It's just like... We were just doing some cleanup, and we accidentally deleted all of your stuff. (laughs) It's so clean. (laughs) You know, this is like big enterprise stuff like Jira and... and Confluence, Ops Genie, Status Page. Just, oh. (laughs) Yeah. We're talking like huge enterprises that use all this stuff, like a lot. Or I guess at last, that even includes like Bitbucket. Right. They bought that. Yes. They also bought Trello, but I don't
1: think that's affected. Well, maybe it is because if they deleted the site... No, Trello still has separate billing, so it's probably fine.
2: Not quite integrated <laughs> yet. But yeah, just imagine if uh, all your Git repos, your wiki, uh, your bug tracker, and everything, and all your users just suddenly gone. And you're like, what? Your service desk, that's yeah. gone too. So people can't even complain. <laughs> that, that helps a lot. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it only affected some people, and then they were able to get some of them back online first. And you know, you definitely know that there are going to be prioritizing their giant enterprise customers before the smaller ones. And they're just like trying to restore everything. And but like you said, part of the problem was that they caught the script before it deleted everything. So they didn't want to just restore everything from backups because that would take some customers would lose changes that they had made since the the last backup. And so they're trying to, you know, manually pick through each thing and decide which ones to restore and which ones not to or worse having to try to actually pick through individual customers and put back things that were gone and and not lose things that were changed since and so on and just yeah that's gonna be a mess
1: they are very careful to say that they haven't lost any data and it wasn't accessed by unauthorized parties but you just have to figure (sighs) I feel really bad for the person who ran that script.
0: Or oh, the person who wrote it.
2: <laughs> yeah, the person who signed off on it. I wrote it, but somebody else reviewed it and said it was okay before I ran it. Or, you
0: know, whoever didn't go through that normal change review process before firing it off. Shouldn't there be logs of what was deleted? And couldn't you grip them and work it out? And It could be, but that doesn't tell you how to undelete them necessarily. <laughs> it's
2: like, which files are missing is probably pretty obvious. It's How do we just restore those ones and and put them back together? And, you know, so much of this is not so much individual files as databases, and it just gets much more complicated. Just obligatory for me, I have to say, they should have just taken a ZFS snapshot before they ran the script, right? Oh, the databases would be all out of sync, and oh, no. Well, no, you'd roll all the databases back by half an hour and just be like, yeah, whatever happened in half an hour didn't happen, or you replay those (laughs) transaction logs over top of the last backup.
1: Oh, that's weird. We were down for two hours. I wonder why. Uh, don't know. Bye.
2: <laughs> Certainly better than we'll, we'll hope to get your account back online in two weeks.
1: Oh, my gosh.
2: You know, we had to deal with an outage for our not even our bug tracker, just our, the app we use for to do lists and so on for like a day and a half. And it was so painful. Just be like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be working on right now. And it's like, I remember some of the things, but I'm sure I'm forgetting something really important. And yeah, I just can't imagine having that, but on a huge scale or just, you know, developers can't check anything into Git because the bit bucket got deleted. Like, (laughs) what do we do? We just paid them for a week to pick their noses. It's like, Git's <laughs> a distributed PCS. They should be able to work each on their own laptop, right? Well, I guess with Git, you would be able to easily just push to something else and, and get back to work temporarily or whatever. But I can just imagine it's a lot of disruption. Mm. They said that if you have on-site hosted JIRA, so if you host your own rather than using the cloud product, you were not affected, which is true. I wonder how many people will reconsider outsourcing all of the management for this kind of stuff after getting bit like this.
1: Well, that's just the thing is that Atlassian is trying to get rid of their on-site server products. Yeah. They aren't selling them anymore as of February
2: and they won't support them in 2024. They very much like to uh, just get a monthly thing for everybody forever instead, right? Mm -hmm. Well, and just I'm sure the amount of support work that is to like helping people deal with upgrades, or (laughs) the fact that a customer ran the cleanup script and deleted all their stuff, and now you have to help them restore it, and maybe their backups aren't as nice as yours.
1: And Jira's all
2: Java. I mean,
1: all the Atlassian stuff is Java, so it would be a pain to administer.
2: And, you know, I can see the same points about the problem with, you know, self-managed servers of this is that... It's your responsibility to have taken the good backup. Where or at least for the cloud one, it's someone else's problem. And
1: they will pay you back for the downtime, probably.
2: Yeah, but, uh, you know, someone else had to spend the last two weeks in fire drill mode trying to get your stuff back online, not you. So I can also see the advantages of using the cloud for it.
0: Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. Go to k-o-l-i-d-e dot com slash two five a to sign up today. Collide sends employees important, timely, and relevant security recommendations for their Linux, Mac, and Windows devices right inside Slack. Collide is perfect for organizations that care deeply about compliance and security, but don't want to get there by locking down devices to the point where they become unusable. Instead of frustrating your employees, Collide educates them about security and device management while directing them to fix important problems. Collide helps deal with some of the many issues that are not solved by locking down devices, like instructing developers to set passphrases on unencrypted SSH keys, finding plain text two-factor backup codes and teaching end users how to store them securely, and convincing employees to uninstall evil browser extensions that may sell their browser history. You can try Collide with all its features on an unlimited number of devices, free for 14 days, no credit card required. Try it out at collide.com 25A. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25 A. Let's talk about Apple's AirTags. Now, I've seen write-ups about various criminal activities that have been done with these things. Mostly car thefts and stuff. That was the, the big thing. But it's actually worse than that. There's a motherboard article that we can link to called Police Records Show Women Are Being Stalked With Apple AirTags Across the Country. And they managed to get hold of a bunch of data from police departments all across the US, and it doesn't look good. Apple's AirTags, of course, are these little things that you can buy, I think it's like three for $100 or something, and you stick them in your bag, or you. Can, I've seen even someone can uh, get one inside a uh, Steam Deck as well, even. And the idea is that they use Bluetooth to communicate with all Apple devices all over the world, and then can report where they are. Sorry, if you leave your bag on the bus or whatever, it's trivial to find it. But of course, anything involving tracking can be abused and is being abused. And people are arguing that Apple are not doing enough here.
2: The first thing I, I was kind of heartened to notice is that Apple did put some thought into this for the initial release. Some of the things they came up with is the kind of thing I would have only expected somebody to think about after it had been used this way. So the fact that they shipped with some of these features by default helps a bit what like chiming yeah so if if the air tag is separated from its its parent or owner or whatever for more than about 24 hours it'll start just beeping uh so that somebody will look at it and partly that's to make sure that your lost item gets found if even if nobody with an iphone walks by but also it means that you know most of these police reports are based on women who found the air tag because it started beeping and then called the police about it because they, you know they apparently knew they were being stalked or whatever. Whereas, you know, if if Apple hadn't thought to do that, how many of these cases might have not gotten reported the same way?
1: And absolutely, Tile, for example, I don't believe did that before either. So it's better. Just the main point of the articles is arguing that they didn't do enough. For example, when the AirTag shipped, it was three days that the AirTag had to be away from its owner before it would beep, which has now gone down to eight hours. Which seems like a better idea anyway. and that there is or was at launch no way to detect this using an Android phone uh, is kind of a big deal, which there wasn't with a Tile either. But you'd have to be a little bit more savvy to know that Tile existed to be able to stalk someone with it. Whereas an AirTag is just, look at this, you bought an iPhone. We have this thing too. Would you like one or four?
2: (laughs) Yeah, it is interesting even looking at Apple's page about it. And they're like, you know, if your iPhone and an AirTag keep being in the same place a lot and, and it's not yours, we'll, be, we'll, we'll let your phone know sooner. And it's like, yeah, so what if the person being stocked doesn't have an iPhone? And then it's like, oh, well, after a while, maybe it'll start beeping until it runs out of battery or something. It definitely does seem like a, a, a second
0: effort rather than they very much are assuming that they only care about people who have iPhones. Yeah, there is an Android app that they released, but you have to know about it. I mean, I didn't know about it. You'd have to suspect you were being tracked to to bother installing this
2: app to see if you're being tracked, right? Yeah, exactly.
1: There is a free and open source app called AirGuard that's on F-Droid that you can get. Same situation, but doesn't require Apple's app from Google Play. And yeah, if you have an iPhone, it automatically
2: will tell you. But you need to have an iPhone for that. Well, even if you have an iPhone... I don't know if you've actually seen Apple's official instructions, but it's like if you have an iPhone, iPad, or iPod touch, find my, which is really range of, they shorten it to just that and they, Capitalize it, just but just using it in a sentence is really weird. Find my will send a notification to your Apple device. This feature is available on iOS and iPad, OS 14.5 or later, blah, blah, blah. But you have to go to Settings, Privacy, Location Services, and turn Location Services on. And then Location Services, System Settings, and turn on Find My iPhone. And turn on Significant Locations uh, so that it'll notice when you go home and so on. And turn on Bluetooth. And go to the Find My app tap the Me tab and turn tracking notifications on. It's like, okay, so I have to give away all my privacy to find out if I'm being stalked? (laughs) If I'm worried
0: about being stalked, maybe the first thing I'm going to do is turn location services off, right? Well, I'm not worried about being stalked and it's the first thing I do with any device.
2: Yeah, and like, you have to turn Bluetooth on? That's like, that's the first thing I turn off. I don't have any Bluetooth devices and I don't want to waste my battery, let alone have other people be able to see my phone doing stuff or even just track the Mac address and so on. And so it does seem a little weird. Although technologically, I don't know what how much more they can do about it and still have the product be useful, which, you know, I don't mean that we have to bias words, you know, you have to be able to make air tags, but what more could they be
0: doing, I suppose, is the question. Well, what they could be doing is something similar to what they did with COVID and contact tracing. That was something that was baked into the OS and there was some coordination or at least efforts to coordinate with Google to put it into Android. And there are people arguing that this is very, very serious and should be baked in at the OS level to both iOS and Android. And you shouldn't need to mess around installing applications and going through settings. If you're being stalked with one of these things, similar with Tile or whatever, you should be notified about it automatically.
2: Yes. Well, that's the one that really starts to raise questions is for this to work, you need it to work with all of these types of devices, not just AirTags and Tile, but the next thing and whoever else. And it's like, how do we make sure everybody, you know, every startup has access to that level of something on your phone. And what if they start abusing it to
0: advertise to you or something? What we need is a new standard.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Like
1: we'll call it Bluetooth tracking 5.2 Gen 1. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. there was a recent tom scott video on his tom scott plus channel his uh, second channel that he does with other people where he actively tried to get tracked across london but there he was deliberately running around london trying not to be tracked and it was actually quite hard to do that
2: right because it, it doesn't really give quite the level of real time you you expect from like the movies when you put a tracker on somebody yeah and you get the little ping, ping 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 going on but in particular definitely good for you know you just want to find out where someone lives so you stick the
0: tracker on them and figure out where they go and stop yeah find out where they live find out where they work find out the favorite coffee shop or bar that they go to because most people go places and hang around for a while they don't just run from place literally run he did in this video from place to place
2: i thought it was interesting the way they did the challenges of the episode of you know had specific tasks so that the other person just wasn't completely in the dark. It seems like it could have been a fun game, but it didn't really teach me as much about AirTag stalking as I was hoping the video would.
0: Yeah, I expected it to be more like the movies and more accurate because the whole point of this whole system of theirs is that it uses every Apple device in the world as long as they've got Bluetooth on, which is on by default for most of them. And so I thought it would be more accurate, but it reassured me just a little bit, I think.
2: I imagine they do it on purpose that they don't quite give you the level of real time. Although, if instead of Tom Scott running around, it was your laptop bag, you would hope to be able to track it a little better. They're also dealing with
1: trying to make sure that they aren't completely draining your battery and things like that. So it makes sense that they aren't completely real time. Although you'd think that with the population density in London, there'd be enough iPhones to make this really work.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's
2: why they chose London to do it. Kind of to the battery saving point is it's mostly about finding when two things are near each other for a bit of time, not you ran past someone who had an iPhone with an AirTag in your backpack. Mm. I suppose at some point the thief will stop running.
0: (laughs) Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A to get started with $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24 7 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account, or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support to find out more. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions normally for Jim and Alan, or any feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what a mysterious anonymous person has done. They write... What security measures would you recommend for developers regularly pushing to Git repositories with a fairly large user base? To be clear, these changes only go into daily builds. Nevertheless, some damage would still be possible. Currently, if someone managed to get access to my home directory, they'd have my private SSH keys and be able to push to any of the repositories I have access to, as I don't use a password on my SSH keys. Oh, I have a feeling you (laughs) two might uh, take issue with that one. Anyway... This anonymous person carries on. Is it possible to use a hardware security token where I can still push using SSH with the additional requirement of having it plugged in? Is this a responsible approach or should I be looking into something else entirely? P.S. I've looked online but found the information very dense and difficult to pass, especially since I've never used these USB security tokens. I think the first thing I would recommend is you
2: want to have a password on your SSH key and then use SSH agent. Uh, so what this does is means instead of having to type in the password of your SSH key every time you get push, which would be a lot, you SSH dash add to add your key to your agent's keyring, And once you do that, you'll type in the password once and it will remember that and let you just get push for a while. And you can configure the agent with, I think, the dash T flag with an amount of time, kind of similar to what like sudo does. When you sudo and you have to type in your password and then you do it again, like eight seconds later and it doesn't ask you for the password the second time. So you can say only ask me for my password for my SSH key like once every half an hour so that if you stop using it, you'll get prompted the next time. But if you're using it rapidly in succession, you don't have to type the password in over and over to the point you get annoyed and want to strip the password off your SSH key. This can also be hooked up with those USB security tokens where maybe you can use your thumbprint instead of having to type in the password uh, or just otherwise have the agent be connected to the USB key And, you know, maybe the SSH key only lives on the USB device and not in your home directory or lots of other different configurations. But in general, that agent with a keyring is probably the right answer. Depending on the OS you use, there are some other like I think there's something a bit more special you can do on a Mac, isn't there, Dalton?
1: So both Linux and macOS have some similar things here. The SSH agent included with GNOME, KDE, and macOS can all access the respective keychains of those platforms. So you type in your password once it is saved to your login keychain. And every time you log into your computer, then it unlocks your keychain, which provides access to your password, which provides access to your SSH key. There are many keys, chains, and passwords in play here.
2: And the key ring and the, yeah.
1: Another option, if you do want to go the hardware route, is YubiKey or NitroKey, which both do PKCS number 11, which is the standard of smart card PGP keys. So in that case, you use the GPG or PGP interface for whatever you're using to upload or create a key on that hardware token. And then you get the public key for that. The private key lives on your token. And whenever you need to SSH, your system asks the token hey will you sign this thing for me and it says sure only if you give me the pin and then you'll be allowed to ssh which then git over ssh can use that ssh2 shell can use that whatever it is i've used that successfully with both yubi keys and the nitro key basically which one you would pick depends on where you live and who which government you hate the most
2: <laughs> it definitely uh Can change your life when you learn about ssh agent for when you're doing git or svn or something and and it's having to ssh a lot not having to type in your password every other time or i remember the old one like doing an svn merge or something and it would actually ssh like eight separate times or something no it's like how many times do i have to enter my password (laughs) (laughs) because back when freebsd used svn i would not commit very frequently And so I would make, you know, extra paranoid that one, I'll type my password in every time I want to commit something. But these other repos, I just wanted to be able to get push and get pull and stuff and just have it work and not prompt me for the password every time. And it helps a lot. So yeah, I moved away from having passwordless SSH keys in my home directory to having passwords on them and then using SSH agent to avoid having to type in the password
0: more than once an hour or something to that effect even zubuntu has a built-in agent i've never known anything else really it just pops up you put the password in once and then for me usually that's it
2: yeah well and and like dalton said you can get ones that are tied to your login so when you log into the machine you don't have to type in your password just by logging in it's loading the the right keys uh and giving you access to the private key but in a way where they're not stored on the disk where someone else would be able to do it if they broke into the machine So long story short,
1: there's a lot of different options here. Just pick one and put a password on your key for Pete's sake.
2: (laughs) for sure. And then if you're extra paranoid, what the repo could do is require two-factor authentication of some kind. I know that... For the same reason, uh, a couple of my friends have Apple Watches specifically so that they can just tap their watch to confirm the two-factor every time with, I think, Duo or something, rather than having to find their phone and and unlock it or whatever every time they go to SSH into something.
0: They just get the notification on the watch and they're like, yes, that was me. I'm surprised that an active project like this, by the sounds of things, doesn't require 2FA.
2: Well, you know, when you get push and get pull and things, like... If you do the 2FA at the SSH level, like you connect to the git thing like a lot, like every time you pull, you push, create branches, it, it could get really annoying really quickly. Especially in open source, more repos are worried about provenance of, you know, signing your commits and proving that this commit came from you and your machine, not someone pretending to be you, then they are worried about someone's got your actual machine and is doing something malicious. But yes, uh, and, and you know, in, in this particular case, the unencrypted or unprotected keys in home directories is definitely a big thing. And
0: people should stop doing that and use an agent or a key ring of some kind. Yeah, because it's not even just the active machine, it's the backups of that machine that you've got to be worried about as well, right?
2: Yeah. And that's why having the, you know, when the keys are at rest, that they're encrypted with your password helps a lot with all that stuff. And a hardware token is just making sure
1: that those keys are never on your disk at all. It's solving the same problem, just in a different way. Instead of it being protected by a password, it's protected by some error. As
2: we've seen with other stuff, like uh, with the Okta thing a couple of weeks ago there, the whole point of Okta is, is that actually it's, it's enforcing that two-factor and stuff for you. Except it turns out the two-factor can be defeated if you can just convince the support people to unlock your account anyway. And, you know, is that a bigger threat than someone getting your laptop specifically? But, you know, as with all security, it's, it's a trade off. It's like you're just moving the slider back and forth between more and more security and more and more annoyance of the people trying to do work and finding the right level uh, where you're not lowering people's productivity or making them get upset and stop working while at the same time not being so open that, you know, people can just do
0: whatever they want. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Thank you very much again, Dalton, for joining us. And people should definitely check out Linux After Dark. dark Linuxafterdark.net. In spite of the fact that Joe is also on that show. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington.
1: I am at Universal Superbox on Twitter, just find it in the show notes.
2: And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.